Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. It was a long time ago, Heavenly Father, when the Spirit spoke to Samuel. And he didn't know, Lord, that it was thy Spirit speaking to him. But when informed, simply said, speak, Lord. Thy servant hears. Father, speak tonight and help us to hear. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to put your thumb in your Bible to the portion of Scripture found in 1 Kings chapter 19, or your bookmark, whatever you find more practical, that will be the chapter that we will focus on tonight. His name was Elijah, the Tishbite. He was probably an unsightly man. The Bible describes him as hairy, one who dwelled in the wilderness, had a loincloth around his waist. He was a prophet called by God during the time that King Ahab was king in Israel. He dwelled among the inhabitants of Gilead. King Ahab was described like this in chapter 16, verse 33. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. He was married to a woman, a Phoenician princess named Jezebel. That relationship brought idol worship to the people of Israel. Jezebel, being a Phoenician princess, worshipped the Phoenician god Baal, along with the Canaanite goddess Asherah. And she brought this idol worship. And Ahab accepted it and violated the very first commandment. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the second like unto it, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And yet the man, the king of Israel, erects a temple for Baal. I mean, out of wood and statues and graven things. Described as being the worst king, Elijah was called to go and teach and preach the word of the Lord. Chapter 18, we're familiar with. It comes in the third year. Elijah had already prayed that the rain would not come. And he finds himself on Mount Carmel against Jezebel's bunch, 450 prophets of Baal, but also the children of Israel that have already defected. And they gather. And Elijah challenges them. And he challenges us today. Chapter 18, verse 21. The famous verse we all know. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Some of you here tonight, perhaps in this area, maybe up there too, I don't know, are halting between two opinions You're vacillating. You're being slick though, right? You're not making a decision tonight. I haven't decided yet. I have options. And if you walk out here tonight with that in your mind, you've already made a decision. 
you've decided again to reject the word of the Lord. You know what happens. An altar is erected. The challenge is there. The bullocks are cut. They're placed on the altar. Baal's prophets are challenged. Call down fire from your God. And they cry out. And nothing happens. And Elijah says, why don't you cry a little harder? And they go through this, this ritualistic of cutting themselves with lancets and bleeding upon the altar. And they cry day, all day, and nothing happens. And in their frenzy, Elijah erects the altar back that was cast down, 12 stones, one for each of the tribe of Israel, and puts the sacrifice upon it. More than that, digs a trench about it, has water doused three times, and prays to Yahweh. Not only does fire come down from heaven, it consumes the rocks. And the Bible says that it licks up the water that was in the trench, and the people saw it. The result of the prophets of Baal, you know, they were slain. Word gets back to Jezreel where Jezebel's hanging out. King Ahab brings word. Your prophets are dead. And it's all Elijah's fault. You see, she brought her idol worship, but she brought the pants too. She was a tyrant. And she says, let's make Elijah's life by the end of tomorrow like he did our prophets. Let's kill him. Chapter 19, Ahab tells Jezebel these things, what happened. And when Elijah sees this, he runs for his life to Beersheba. He spends a day's journey into the wilderness and sits under a tree, and this is his request of God. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Here's a man who just experienced what we would coin a mountaintop experience, literally, in this case, a mountaintop experience. But God's glory demonstrated before him. And now he's running from a queen? He's alone in the wilderness, and his one request to God is it's finished. Take my life. We know what happens. We know the rest. But remember this. Sometimes when God answers a prayer, no, it's a good thing. If God answered his prayer in the positive, he would have died. And yet the Bible records Elijah being only one of two who did not taste physical death. That prayer was not answered. That request was denied. And somehow, I think... Perhaps as he was brought up in that whirlwind, that chariot, he thought of that time of loneliness and how God said, no, I still need you. God provides for him physically again. He tells him, get up, eat, drink. You need to be strong. And this happens twice. And now he heads out to Horeb, the Mount of God, also known as Sinai, 40 days. Significant, right? 40-day journey. <coughs> and we pick up in verse 9. Chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him 
And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. We have a little better picture now of the circumstances of this Tishbite, a prophet of God, a mighty man, unsightly, yet bold and courageous. Went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Take my life. It's finished because I, only I, am left alone. The question comes to us tonight. What circumstance do you find yourself in tonight? Are you riding high? Are you on the mountaintop tonight? You loving Eastern camp? It's the best place. I meet all my friends. I get to do all these sports. You know what? The food's pretty good this year. Subjective. Can you hear great sermons, forums? I love singing in the choir. I might even find my future spouse. In fact, I might spend all week looking for them. But you know what? I might break some hearts too. I might waste my week. And you know, you may have caused somebody's highlight to become a low light because of the decisions you make. Somebody could have been riding high yesterday. And now is in the valley. And feels like I am all alone in this. My group of friends, they're doing this. They're going. They're finding their boyfriend and girlfriend. But I, I want to see God. I want to hear God. I need to hear him. Because my circumstances are dire. God knows your circumstances, and so he asks you the question like he asks Elijah here in the cave. What doest thou here, Elijah? Verse 9. God has this amazing ability that we don't get sometimes, maybe only in retrospect, that he can meet us where we are, whatever your circumstance is, but more than meeting us, What does he say? What doest thou here, Elijah? He knows his name. He knows your name. Jesus walking during his ministry down the road didn't say, hey, man up in a sycamore tree, come on down. He looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, please come down. For today, salvation has come to your house. 
Was it not Mary? Outside the empty sepulcher, crying, where have they taken him? And she supposed it being the gardener. He says one word, Mary. And her response, Rabboni, which means master. She understood it was Jesus. And how could we forget the persecutor on the horse, on the way to Damascus? I'm going to exact God's righteousness and judgment upon these Christians. And who met him on the way? Jesus. It didn't say anything but Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. God knows where we are. He meets us where we're at. He's meeting you here tonight and he's calling you by name. And he's asking you the question, what doest thou here? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, slain the prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. You know the word here, wind, shavar in Hebrew, means to break in pieces. It literally means to rent asunder, to destroy. The, the word is tend to use to describe ships that are on the ocean that get battered and the sails are tattered and torn by the destructive force of the wind. Brother and sister, and those of you seeking God, has your ship of faith been tossed about in the wind? Are you feeling the storm of life? There's a couple kinds of wind. Ephesians 4.14 tells us that we henceforth be no more children driven with the wind, tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive us. How many of our ships of faith are being tossed by the winds of doctrine? How about the winds of change? Is your ship of faith being tattered and blown about by winds of change? Some of us fear change. Some of you at home tonight are there because you're afraid things are changing too much. Some of you watch from your computer tonight because you're afraid to be here because they're all about change. And they just want to change us. They want to change our faith. They want to change our name. And your ship of faith is being tossed by the wind of change. But the Lord was not in the wind. And then an earthquake. And after the earthquake, 
the Lord was not in it. The word earthquake, rahash, means quaking, rattling, shaking, trembling. In Jeremiah 47.3, it's described as this, as of chariots and horses running, at the noise of the stomping of the hooves of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, and at the trembling of his wheels. It also relates to the battle scene when soldiers would line up and legions of men would be there with their spears and they would shake them and rattle them. Same word used as a quake and a trembling and a fear. Brother and sister, how many of us are engaged in this spiritual warfare? And you feel like the chariots and the horsemen and the spears are ever pressing upon your life. It's becoming too much to bear. God, take my life. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then a fire. Simple Hebrew word, esh. To burn. To engulf in flames. To consume. It's what happened in chapter 18 with the altars. How many of us feel the trials and the temptations ever stronger in this day and age? How many of us feel sometimes like three young men that lived very long ago? Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And the furnace was kicked up a notch. How many of us forget Peter's simple words, 1 Peter 4.12. Don't think it's some strange thing concerning the fiery trials which are to come as though some strange thing happened. Is it getting hard? Is it getting hot? Do you feel the heat? Are you ready to give up? But the Lord was not in the fire. And afterward... A still, small voice. Brother last night expounded. We're hard of hearing. We have a difficulty getting it from the sender to the receiver. I want to share with you what I believe will allow us to hear that still, small voice. But more than that, put into perspective where I'm at in my life. And brother and sister, you might feel this more applicable to you than my unconverted friend, but my unconverted friend, who is not halting between two opinions anymore, I hope, will find the same applicability. The first way is to keep the cross before you. No matter what your circumstances in life, You may have financial ruin. Cancer may have destroyed your life. You may have lost everything. A spouse, whatever, a job. Brother and sister, keep the cross before you. If the cross is before me, I see salvation. I see grace. I see love. I see he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I see him who was lifted up, who who hangs between heaven and earth, 
That in the time of the children of Israel in the wilderness, when Moses lifted up the serpent, all that would look upon him would live. And when I look upon the cross, I hear these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I hear the final cry, it is finished. We're reminded daily, brother and sister, when we signed up, if you will, for Christ's army, he told us three things. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. Romans 12:1 describes this as our reasonable service. That our lives are to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Not even asking for a dying sacrifice, a living sacrifice. The Apostle Paul wrote, and and this verse blows my mind, he says, though our outward man perish, our inward man is renewed day by day. How many of us went to sleep last night thinking we might die because of what we believe, because of what we preach and what we teach? If I keep the cross before me, it puts in perspective how little I am and how great God is. It puts into perspective truly what idolatry is. Idolatry needs people. How's the idol built? By a man. Who comes to worship the idol? The man. And yet God made us in his image. He doesn't need us. We need him. He provides for us. He directs and guides us, not the other way around. And so number two is is like unto number one, keep the cross before you. Focus on God above you. Too often the pity party starts because I'm looking at myself too long. Lord, take my life because I can't see outside of my circumstances. But when I focus on God above, I remember he's creator and he's in charge. And I bear the imago dei, the image of God. Young people who are unconverted, who don't care, who've tuned out long ago, I challenge you with this. You say, I don't care if I bear the image of God. I don't owe him anything. He owes me everything. I didn't ask to be born in this faith. I didn't ask to have Christian parents. No, you didn't, but you do. And so a man challenges Jesus and says, is it rightful to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus says, show me a coin. Flips Jesus a coin, catches the penny, the denarian. He looks upon it and he says, whose image do you see? And superscription. The man rightfully answers, Caesar's. Jesus says, Render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, and render unto God that which belongs to God. And all three synoptic gospels record that encounter, but there is something that seems to be missing. And it's the follow up question. It says they walked away, they marveled at his words. But the follow up question is what? What belongs to God? And Jesus looks at you and he looks at me and he says, whose image is on you? We bear the image of God and it belongs to him. And so I need to focus on him. Keep the cross before me. Focus on God above me. And number three, perhaps the most difficult, but it's a lot easier when the other two are in place, resist the world around me. There's a lot of pressure we're getting from without. But you know what? Jesus never promised us Christians easy street. 
John 16, tells us that in this world ye shall have tribulation. But he says, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. God reminds us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Peter tells us that his divine power has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We don't have excuses. God says that with every temptation, there will be a way of escape so that you can bear it. This world will put pressure on us. Satan's busy. He wants you back. And young convert or one who's seeking tonight, you are going to feel the fire. You're going to feel the wind. You're going to feel the earthquakes. But look and find and listen for that still small voice. Lastly, once the cross is before us, we focus on God above us, resist the world around us, let Christ be formed within us. The disciples were a disaster when they found out that Jesus was going to leave. John chapter 14 says that Jesus had to comfort them and said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. If I'm going to go, I'm coming back again. And the reason I'm going is because I'm going to prepare a place for prepared people. That's my paraphrase. But he says, I will not leave you comfortless. He reminds us that the Holy Spirit, which is the comforter, in verse 17 of John 14, he will do two things. He will dwell in you and he will be with you. And he will lead us and guide us into all truth. He will be that paraclete, that one who would come alongside with us. He will be the one who reminds us to keep the cross before us, to focus on God above you, to resist the world around you, and daily be renewed and Christ will be formed within you. The response comes back to Elijah. The Lord said, Go return to thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshalat, thou shalt anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abimelahola, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room, and it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Verse 18, 1 Kings 19, yet... Have I left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him? Brother and sister, I don't know your circumstances. You don't know mine. But God asks us what we're doing here. And he calls us by name. And he says, you might see wind, and you might see an earthquake, and you might see a fire. And I might not be in them. But after that, listen for the still small voice. Because it's going to remind us we're not alone. Amen.